Let me read the text, and we'll dig in. Jesus said, Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, Come along now and sit down to eat. Would he not rather say, Prepare my supper, get yourself ready, and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat or drink. Eat and drink. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you are told to do, should say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. I was reading this week about uh, a guy named H.T. Webster, who was uh, a cartoonist uh, in the first part of the 20th century. And some have said is, you know, one of the greatest American cartoonists. Uh, would put him in that kind of category, a political and cultural cartoonist. Uh, anyway, he had a great sense of humor. He had a great sense of wit. And uh, one time for a prank, what he did was he sent out, he picked 20 of his acquaintances at random, and he sent out a telegram to each of them. And on the telegram, it said one word. They all got the same telegram. It simply said, congratulations. That was it. And according to the story, he received 20 thank you notes from people who all assumed they had done something worthy of the telegram and were just so glad that H.T. Webster had finally noticed. Somebody finally noticed what I did. And so everyone else supplied you know, the necessary good deed for which the telegram was sent. And it's just, I, I chuckle to that story because it's so much our tendency to pat ourselves on the back, to think that, well, I've done something and therefore people ought to notice and why isn't anyone noticing what I'm doing and because, wow, isn't it great what I'm doing. And, you know, I'm amazed for myself at how little it takes, how little I have to do to start feeling smug about myself. It just takes a little bit. It's the proverbial help the old lady across the street thing and suddenly, huh, look at that. That's, that was amazing. I, I mean, really, did anyone see me do that? Because... Wow, look at me. Uh, and you just have to do something like, at Thanksgiving, I didn't eat Thanksgiving dinner. I was at a homeless shelter helping serve food. Or, I support one of those children in one of those countries for a dollar a day. Or, and, you know, that's good. We should do those things. My point isn't to say we shouldn't do those things. My point is just to comment on how quickly I fall into that kind of self-righteousness, uh, smugness. Hey, everybody, give me a little pat on the back. Doesn't everyone notice what I did? Well, Jesus is attacking that sense of pride in this text. But not just any pride. A a special kind of pride. He's going after spiritual pride. Which is the same kind of pride, except it comes when we do religious activities. When we keep God's laws in some way. Again, we're so tempted to say, well, look at me. Well, I served on this committee, or I helped out with that. And, huh, did anyone notice? And, And we get so quickly full of ourselves. It's amazing how little it takes to fill me up. Fill up my ego. Uh, my, my wife was uh, watching, she, some of you know she was sick a couple Sundays ago, and she was watching a TV preacher because she couldn't come to church. So she said, well, at least I'll watch a TV preacher. She turned it on, and this guy was preaching, and the point he was trying to make in his sermon was to encourage people in the church to serve. Yeah, a great sermon. We all need to serve. We're all in the body of Christ. We all need to do our part. And that was his sort of point. But the way he was making the point just totally blew my wife away. Because what he did was, he essentially started bragging about how much he did in the church and had spent his whole life and how no one else was doing that and he was kind of just shaming his congregation. 
So the sermon my wife was kind of relating to me it was like, I've been a pastor since I was 20. I've been doing ministry for X number of years. I've given my life to the ministry. You're not doing anything. You see how much I do? And that was the point. And, you know, so the message should have been, hey, we're all part of the body of Christ and we all need to serve and be a part of the church. Uh, but, but the message that came across was, look how great I am. Does everyone notice what I'm doing? And you're not doing it, you bunch of losers. Why don't you do it? Kind of a message. And so Jesus, in this text, he has a pin. And he's going to pop our egos with this little pin. And the little pin is very simple. The thing Jesus wants to remind us is that God is the master. We are the servants. He's the master. We're the servants. And therefore, we don't owe, uh, God doesn't owe us anything. God is not in our debt. God has no uh, obligation toward us. Because I do X, Y, and Z as a servant of God, that now God has to do something for me. That's the whole point of the story. A servant does what a servant does because that's a servant's job. And we're the servants of God. So look at verse 7. Jesus says, Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, Come along now and sit down to eat. Would he not rather say, Prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink. So the picture Jesus has in mind here is a common picture in that ancient context, which would have been a master having one servant. But, but actually, you know, your Bible and my Bible here says servant. But let's be honest. It's a slave. I mean, they should have just translated it slave. And you know, the Roman Empire ran on slavery. That was part of how it worked. Now, we have to remember it was different, because when we hear the word slave, we think uh, perhaps of 18th and uh, 19th century slavery in America and in Europe and in England, which was African chattel slavery, and it wasn't like that. It, you know, the slavery in the Roman Empire was not racially based. Uh, and actually, sometimes it was okay to be a slave if you had the right master and you had the right job. Some people who were free, but dirt poor and just living hand to mouth, might sell themselves into slavery to a well-respected landowner, save up their money, rise in the ranks socially, and then buy their freedom back, because you could buy your freedom back, and then come out of slavery, and, and come out better than when they went in. So slavery wasn't necessarily the same today as it was uh, or, or in our experience, in our nation's history as it was back then. But look, bottom line, it's still slavery. It's still slavery. And I don't care what the system is, it's got to stink to be a slave, because you're owned by somebody. And so that's the situation here. Jesus envisions a, a farmer who perhaps is wealthy enough to own one slave. He doesn't have a lot, because notice the slave has to do the inside and the outside work. He does them both. Uh, if he had more slaves, maybe some would take care of the house, some would take care of the farm. But, so anyway, here's this farmer, he's got a slave. And Jesus' point in all this, the whole point of telling this parable is not to endorse slavery, but, but it's to say... Look, a slave doesn't uh, put his master in his debt by doing his work. Because the slave does his job, that does not make the master now owe the slave something. It's not like the master comes in from the field and says, like, wow, he did such a great job today, servant. How can I ever pay you back? I owe you big time. I'm really in your debt. I have such a huge obligation to you now. What, what do you want me to do? Oh, I know. You sit down to eat, and, and I'll take care of the food this time. I don't know. You know, the master sits down, he's like, hey, get my food, take care of me, and when it's all done, you can eat. But 
look, this is your job and this is my job. And so look at verse 9. He says, would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? Is that, is that the master's job is to go around saying, oh, I'm so in your debt. I, it, that, that word thank has the idea of a credit. Does the slave get some kind of credit for doing his job? You know, we have Thanksgiving. God doesn't have Thanksgiving. We thank God. God doesn't thank us. It's not like, you know, on Thursday, God was in heaven having a big feast. Like, I'm so thankful for you and all you do for me, you people. No, that's our holiday. He doesn't thank us. We thank him. He's the master and we are the servants. So that's the main thrust of this, this text is to recognize we, God doesn't owe us anything because we are his servants. Now, I was trying to think of a modern analogy because you start talking like ancient slaves and masters and it's so far from our experience. You know, it's hard for us, I think, to really enter into this story. So I was like, okay, what's something like that today? And this is what I came up with and see what you think. Maybe you can come up with a better analogy. But I was thinking about the relationship of parents to children. Uh, some of you kids are like, yeah, that's right. My, kid, my parents treat me like a slave, but that's not my point. You know, all right, 7.15 rolls around at my house at night. And somewhere around there, my wife and I send out the edict. It is now family cleanup time. That's what we call it. Family cleanup time. And, and we start assigning rooms. All right, you're cleaning this room. You're cleaning that room. You clean the basement. And we send the kids and they, they start cleaning. And even the two-year-old, we have him pick up a few things. We're just trying to teach him how to do it. So everybody helps in the cleaning. It doesn't matter whose mess it is. We all pitch in. It's family cleanup time. Uh, and, and so my kids do it. Now, here's the question. Am I now in debt to my kids because they've cleaned up? Am I like, oh, kids, I owe you big time. How could dad ever pay you back? I am really in your debt. You know, okay, fine. I'm taking you out to Friendly's tonight. Ice cream for everyone. Because I've got to find some way to pay you kids back. Like, oh, I don't have to pay my kids back. You know, parenting 101. You don't, you don't have to bribe or reward your kids for doing them, for them doing what they're supposed to do. It's just, that's their job. They help out and they do things. Now, do I encourage my kids? Of course. And if they do a good job, do I say great job? Of course. But I don't owe them something. I'm not now obligated and beholden to my children because that's their role. They're children and I'm the parent. And so in the same way, Jesus says it was with masters and slaves. And now what's the point? Because there's an analogy being drawn here, and I'm sure you've already seen it, but let's just spell it out. Verse 10, Jesus says, so you also. Now who's the you? That's disciples. All the disciples, the followers of Jesus. So the same is true with us who are disciples of Christ. When you have done everything you were told to do, by whom? Who told us? God, Jesus. So God is the master. You should say we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. So God is the master and we are the slaves. That's what it means to be a Christian in part, is that God is our master, we're his slaves. Uh, the Apostle Paul in all of his writings, that's one of his common phrases, he calls himself a slave of Christ. And maybe you're thinking, uh, why would I want to be a Christian then? You know, maybe you're not a Christian, you're like, so I could be a slave? Uh, no, thank you, I don't want to be a slave. <laughs> why would someone want to enslave themselves to Jesus if that's you know, a way of describing the Christian life? And I guess my answer is, well, we're all enslaved to something. We all serve something. doesn't matter who you are, what, what it is. If it's not God, it'll be something else. 
it'll be money, or it'll be, you know, entertainment, or it'll be a relationship, or it'll be sin of some sort. But we're all enslaved to something. We're all creatures. And creatures need a creator. Creatures need a God. We all have a religion. Maybe you don't go to church for it, but we all worship something. We're creatures. And, and so, you know, what are you going to serve? That's the issue. To, to what will you be enslaved? You can be enslaved to alcohol, you can be enslaved to lust, or you can, you can be enslaved to Jesus. There's lots of things to be enslaved to. And the ironic thing, of course, is that when you're a slave of Jesus, you're truly free. Whereas if I seek my own freedom apart from God, I actually enter into slavery. So it's kind of an interesting paradox. The only real freedom is by surrendering my life to Christ. Only in Him is there true liberty and freedom. And so that's what it means to follow Christ. It, which I, I just want to emphasize this because I think that's something that we often leave out in our preaching, in our evangelical teaching about God today. Often God is, you know, my best friend and He's my helper and He's the guy who fixes my life and, you know, Jesus is my boyfriend kind of thing. You know, where it's like, you know, I'm so chummy chummy with God and He's so my buddy that we forget He's the Master. God is holy. He's the creator of all things. I mean, just let this sink in. Let this sink in. God doesn't owe you anything. God is under no obligation to do anything for you whatsoever. Now, I'm not denying that His love, He does all kinds of things for us. He's very kind and merciful. But, I, you know, I was just struck by that as I read this text. Do I really see that about God? That I owe Him everything and He owes me nothing. You know, He's the Creator. We're the creation. The Creator can do whatever the Creator wants to do with the creation. And, you know, there's something about that that just rubs me the wrong way. I'll admit it. I'm like, ah, ah, I don't like that. God can do whatever He wants? Yeah, God can do whatever God wants. And, you know, we talk about people that way. We go, who do you think you are? God? But in his case, God's like, yeah, I am God. And so that's what it means to be God, is that you own everything, all authority, every right is God's, God's going to do what he wants. And that's why it's just so ridiculous when we challenge God on things. Like, how could you do that? Why could you do that? It's like, I'm God. That's the whole book of Job, right? Job has all these sufferings, and, and so Job says to God, like, God, I'm your best servant, and you're giving me the worst time, why are you doing this? It doesn't make sense. Explain yourself to me. And, you know, God's answer, I'm really summarizing Job here, but God's answer to Job is, I'm God. I hold your life in my hand. You can't even begin to understand my ways. To think of God as sovereign and awesome. God, you can't predestine some to be saved. He's God. This is His creation. He owes Nothing to us. Not even an explanation. Which is why it's so amazing all that He gives us. His great blessings and His mercy. And I just think we need to be humbled before Him in this. We need to, be, to realize His sovereign claim. He is the King. He is the Creator. And we are the subjects. We are the creation. When that truth about God, not to deny His love, not to deny His kindness, but when that truth about His sovereign claim over our lives weighs in and sinks into us. It changes the way we look at each other and the way we look at God. And it affects us in a very positive way. And one of the things it does is it destroys spiritual pride. It saves us from spiritual pride uh, in two ways. First of all, 
recognizing that God is God and that He owes me nothing and I owe Him everything and I'm the servant and He's the master, all that, first of all, it, it destroys any pride I might have toward you. It destroys the kind of look down your nose and self-righteous arrogance that we have because, boy, I did something and I did that for God and aren't I great and why don't you notice it kind of attitude. You know, because I'm just a slave. I'm doing my part as a slave. You're doing your part serving God. And so God's given us these roles. How can we boast about that? How can we be proud about that? Now, when you think in Jesus' day of the people who were the epitome of those who were full of themselves religiously, you think of the Pharisees, right? In fact, they're in the background of this story. They're here listening to this teaching. The Pharisees were the guys who kept all the rules, did all the rituals, and they even kept rituals and rules that weren't even in the Bible. They made up extra ones, and they kept those too. And they were the ones who prided themselves on their religious scruples. And Jesus says in Luke chapter 11, verse 43, Woe to you Pharisees, because you love the best seats in the synagogue and the greetings in the marketplaces. You love it when people recognize how religious and upright you are. And so that happens. When you get religious or you start following God's laws and you start getting away from sin, it's so easy to become arrogant. And to start thinking like the Pharisees, like, well, look at me, I'm something. And to look down on other people. And we do the same thing, right? It's like you, don't, you come into a church and you're kind of like, oh, this is nice. And oh, I wonder if I can help out here. And so you decide to help out and you start helping out you know, something easy. You, you go in the nursery once a month for an hour to help watch babies. But even that goes to your head because you're like, huh, I'm in the nursery. I'm helping out here. You know, other people aren't doing it. I know people in the church who aren't doing anything. And I'm here once a month. I don't even have kids. And I'm here in the nursery. Huh. You know, these other people, they don't serve. No one in the church serves like I serve. Or you're like, oh, I've been on this committee. Or, you know, I, I've been doing this, this committee for X number of years. And no one else is doing that. I mean, I'm really, you know, why aren't people doing what I'm doing? And, and why don't people respect what I do? And, and, you know, I've been in this church for 26 years. And that person's only been in this church for six months. <laughs> you know, it's like... How's that a brag? I've been a slave for 26 years and you've been a slave for six months. I mean, why are you boasting about how long you've been a slave of Christ? Um, you know, or, or, or I'm an elder. This is my second time as an elder. Or I'll give you the big head trip. This is the one that'll just like send you to the moon. I'm the senior pastor. <laughs> I must be important because look at my job. And, ah. and Now you couple... That, that tendency to get full of ourselves when we serve God and to get full of ourselves when we, when we do the work God calls us to with the celebrity culture in which we live where we tend to make celebrities out of leaders and speakers and you know if you're a mega pastor in a mega church or you write a mega book or you have a mega ministry you know it's easy to start getting a mega ego and start assuming well I must be something and the evangelical culture kind of mimics our secular culture in wanting to have celebrities. And so we sort of built, you know, so while the guy's you know, head is blowing up and he's flying into orbit, you know, we're like, yay, and we're praising him because that's kind of how it works. And, and we have this celebrity thing. It's been said in the old days we used to have heroes, and today we don't have heroes, we have celebrities. And so we, we feed into that whole celebrity mindset. <clears throat> but we have to remind ourselves that we're just slaves, we're servants. And the higher we climb, if you want to use that kind of language, in leadership, the more we need to be servants. Gregory the Great, who was the Bishop of Rome in the 6th century uh, A.D., had a saying. He called the, the priests and the bishops, he called them the servants of the servants of God. 
And I think that's how leaders in the church need to see themselves. Servants of the servants of God. We have to see that we're just, you know, we are, especially pastors and leaders and elders in the church, but any of us who do ministry, we're like the donkey that carried Jesus into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, down the Mount of Olives. You know that story? Jesus sits on the donkey, donkey carries him into Jerusalem. You're just a donkey. That's it. That's what ministry is. It's carrying Jesus to people. Whether I do it here on Sunday morning or whether you're in the nursery with a three-year-old and you're teaching them to sing Jesus Loves Me or you're going over a Bible verse with them, you're just a donkey carrying Jesus to the people. You know, so just go there. I'm a donkey. That's who I am. Now, imagine if while the donkey's going down the hill with Jesus on his back, the donkey's like, wow, I must be some kind of special donkey. Listen to these people. They're saying, Hosanna. And they're throwing their coats down in front of me. And they're waving palm branches around. You know, there haven't been many donkeys like me. I bet they don't do this for most donkeys. <laughs> and we start thinking, it must be me. But it's like if you're having real success in ministry where pe- people's lives are really being changed, realize it's only because you're carrying Jesus well. And you're just a donkey. <laughs> I'm just a servant of God. I'm just a slave. What a, what a joy it is to, to carry Jesus to bear Jesus around. Um, Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, he founded the China Inland Mission. He was being introduced once to speak, and he was a famous missionary. And he was speaking at this um, church in uh, Australia. Uh, it was a Presbyterian church. And he gets up to speak, and the guy's introducing him, and the guy just starts going on and on and on and on about how great Hudson Taylor is. And Hudson Taylor's done this, and isn't he a wonderful guy? And, and now our illustrious speaker... And, so he introduces Hudson Taylor, and Taylor steps up to the podium and pauses and trying to think of what to say after that introduction. And finally he says, my dear friends, he says, I am the little servant of an illustrious master. And that's the attitude we need to have as servants of Christ. Only Christ is great. We're just his servants. But not only does that apply to our relationship to one another, Not only does it obliterate any sense of pride and bragging and boasting we could have to each other, it also, I think, and of course this is the thrust of the text, it obliterates any sense of pride or boasting we could have toward God. God doesn't owe me anything. God is not obligated to me in any way. And yet we think that way. It's like, God, why is this happening to me? How could these things happen in my life? I mean, you know, my health situation, or, you know, how come I can't have a kid, or why can't I find a spouse, or what's wrong with my job, or, you know, I thought I was going to be doing this by age 45, and my life isn't where I wanted it to be. Why are you letting this and that and the other thing happen to me, God? Because, God, don't you know what I do for you? I I have served you. I give regularly, uh, financially. I've been in that church. I do this. I, I don't party. I'm not a wild liver. I, I, I live a, a clean life. I'm trying to follow your rules, God. And this is the thanks I get? And look at the guy who lives next door to me. I mean, you know him. Boy, he is godless. That person is just reckless and wild. And look how good he's got it. Maybe I should be a sinner. Maybe I should just do whatever I want because it seems like you bless those kind of people. And we get to this mindset that if I don't, uh, you know... If, if something's going wrong in my life, that that's wrong because God owes me good things. Uh, <clears throat> this friend of mine has a T-shirt. I'm going to have to buy one. It's the greatest T-shirt. It's a Coke machine. All right? 
And you know how the letters, the Coca-Cola? Except instead of saying Coca-Cola, it says in the exact same script, God, going up the Coke machine. And then, you know, on the side of the Coke machine where you push the buttons and you get Coke or Sprite or, you know, it says the different things. Except instead of the thing that, it says 2.5 kids, um, you know, big house, hot wife, nice car, right? It's the coolest shirt, and that's it. It's the God Coke machine. And, you know, it's making a statement about how we look at God and say, all right, I'm putting in, chink, whatever it is that I'm doing for you that's so great, God, and now I'm going to hit this button. And, and then when it doesn't come rattling out, we're like, hey, you know, God, where's my... And we start kicking it and slapping it, and we're getting all mad because we think God is going to give us what we want, which is the exact same thing that pagan idolatry was all about. Except instead of a Coke machine, they had an idol. And instead of money, they had an offering. And they expected that if you gave the idol X, you would get Y. And that's how ancient and modern idolatry works. And much of modern religion works. But God does not owe me anything. Uh, You know, God has not promised to bless us in this life. In physical terms with money and houses and things like that. He does sometimes, but he doesn't have to. He's not obligated to do that. God has promised us great blessings in the life to come. Heaven is when I will sit down at the banquet feast. I've, and, and I'm not getting that because I've done something right. It's just God's grace. But do you realize God hasn't promised us temporal blessings? He's promised to be with us. He's promised to love us. But those are his spiritual blessings. But physically, he hasn't promised us a good life. In fact, Jesus said, you know, take up your cross and follow me. And so we go, we take up our cross, and we go, okay, fine. And get the cross on our shoulders, like, ooh, that's heavy. It's kind of scratchy. This isn't comfortable. Like, what? You know, it's splinters. Ow! How long do I have to carry this? Jesus says, follow me. Yeah, how far, Jesus? Follow me. (laughs) This isn't what I thought. I didn't think it was going to be like this. But Christ calls us to follow him no matter what. And he doesn't owe us an easy, smooth life, even though sometimes he does bless us in this life. But even more importantly, serving God and living for him, not only does it, he does not owe us temporal blessings, most importantly, he doesn't owe us our eternal blessings and salvation because of the things we do. And this is the mistake that we make, and it is an eternally devastating mistake. Here's the question I want to ask you. What must I do to be saved? How can I be certain that when I die and I go into the next life and I face God, that my sins will be forgiven and I will be on the right side of God? How can I be certain that heaven is my future? And and how you answer that question is everything. And I think that if you ask most people that question, like if you were to go outside of Whole Foods, you know, with a clipboard and, excuse me, can I ask you a question? How can a person be saved? You know, or if you're standing outside the commuter boat and all the people are coming off from Boston at the end of the day and you stood there in the shipyard just asking people as they came by, what must I do to be saved? I'm sure you'd get a lot of different answers, but my, my guess is they would all have a common theme, that, that there would be one answer out of the others that would just predominate. I'd be willing to wager that there would be one major answer. And you know what the major answer would be. It's like, be a good person. Do your best. Be nice to people. Um, you know, maybe do something in the church or go to church. But it would be do this and do that and be a good person. It's that same 
mindset, isn't it? You know that would be the answer. I was talking to a lady this summer, and uh, she's from a different church, and somehow we got talking about churches, and I was talking about our church, and she talked about her church, and we are talking about some of the differences between the churches, and it was kind of an interesting conversation. Anyway, we're wrapping up the conversation, and she wanted to leave it on a good note, you know, which was nice of her. But, but this is what she said. She said, well, you know, in the final analysis, it really doesn't matter what church you go to. The important thing is being good. She told me, and I was like, like, yeah, if I could, I would. <laughs> Tried that, I failed. I can't be good enough. But that's the mindset. It's the mindset of the scales, right? If my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, then I'm all set. There's a problem with the scale thing, though. The scale, because that's a common sort of idea. But the scale thing doesn't work. And the reason the scale thing doesn't work is because the things I do that are good do not weigh the same as the things I do that are wrong. They have different weights. Um, Jonathan Edwards, and I'm going to do him terrible injustice by trying to summarize his ideas, but he kind of put it this way. He said, look, we're under an infinite obligation to God. So that means if I do something really, really, really good, how much credit or weight does it have with God? Well, none. Because that's what I'm supposed to do as a slave. That's my job. I, I'm already obligated to do that. So it's like my best good deed I ever did is like taking a dust speck. You know sometimes when the light comes through the house into your room and you see the little things floating? You know, imagine if you took a pair of tweezers and like grabbed one. You know, put that on the scale. That's my best good deed. Conversely, my smallest sin weighs like Mount Washington. <clears throat> Why? Because I owe God an infinite debt and an infinite service. And so even the smallest transgression has an infinite consequence because of what I owe God. And so my, my good deeds and my bad deeds are two different classes of things in terms of what it does in my standing before God. And so all of our scales look the same. Boom. In fact, the table fell over. And there's a big hole in the floor because my sins went through the floor. <laughs> You've seen this new commercial where the, the car falls down through the earth? And, you know, comes out the other side of the earth in China. Same thing. You know, my sins just go all the way through, out the other side of the earth. It's, it's the, they're so weighty before God. And so that's why this whole balance thing doesn't work. And, you know, some of you know this. Some of you are learning this in your own lives. This has been your experience. Um, because there's, when you come to be, be a Christian, there's kind of a typical process that we go through. I mean, it's not the exact same for everyone, but there's some stages to it that are often the same. And the first stage is, is religious awakening. That's when someone invites you to church or to a Bible study or something, and you're like, I don't want to go. What do I have to go? Finally you go, and you're like, oh, that wasn't so bad. I kind of got something out of that. Oh, wow, that was neat. Or I like that. That wasn't as bad as I thought. And maybe I need to look into this more. Maybe this is something I'm missing. And, and so we're, we're awakened religiously. And we start looking into it. And maybe, maybe you go join a Bible study, or maybe you take a Sunday school class, or maybe you start going to church regularly or something. And you start doing it because you're like, wow, I'm getting something out of this. This is great. And then you enter a next phase where you start to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for this. I'm going to try to live this way. Okay, here I go. I'm going to change my behavior. I'm going to change my lifestyle. I'm going to do better. And you start trying to live it out. You go, okay, let's give this Christianity a go. I'm going to try it. And whether it's going to church or just being a good person or changing your lifestyle. And so you start going for it. And 
which we should. We should try to obey God. But eventually you start finding that despite all of your Bible study, church, Sunday school attendance, and despite all your best efforts to change, you're still the same sinner underneath it. Then you're like, oh, you know, maybe I should leave church because it's not doing me any good. But, but don't you see, at that moment, you're so close to the kingdom of God. You're so close. Because if by God, by His grace, will just open your eyes, you'll then say, you know what? I can't save myself. I can't be good enough. And when you've been brought down to realizing your total depravity before God, that's when you are ready to turn to the cross and say, Jesus, I'm not good enough. I can't keep the rules. I can't change myself. My, that big pile of sin is there. There's no amount of do-gooding that is going to change the scales. Jesus, would you rescue me, a sinner? And that is when you are saved. When you call out to God and to Christ to save you. That, that's, when, that's when you know that that has taken place. When you put all of your faith in Jesus instead of yourself. And God is trying to bring you to the end of yourself to realize that you can't and that only Christ can. And He's bringing you slowly but surely to that place. Because um, Jesus... Jesus is the perfect slave. Think about it. Jesus owed us nothing. And yet, or I should say, God the Son, in order to serve us, became a slave. God the Son, who owed us nothing, became the perfect slave. He did the will of God perfectly. But not just that. He died on the cross. He took the punishment that I, as an unfaithful slave, deserve. So He was the perfect slave that I failed to be. And He was the sacrifice that I deserve for my sins. And so He's my righteousness and my forgiveness. He's everything. And so salvation is found in taking all of your hope and all of your faith, turning away from sin and putting it on Christ in order to be saved. That is how a person is saved. The uh, jailer in Philippi in Acts chapter 16 asked the Apostle Paul, what must I do to be saved? Do you remember what Paul's answer was? Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. There's got to be more to it than that. Are you sure there's no ritual? Can't I crawl up and down the you know, steps of the church ten times on my bare knees in the freezing weather? I mean, something I can do to pay it back. Believe on Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Once upon a time, there was a man who was a painter, and uh, he wanted to paint a picture of the prodigal son story. And, uh, you know, that, that scene where the prodigal son is all just disheveled and, and looked terrible, and he finally came back to, the mass, uh, to his father and, you know, to, to repent and to maybe get a job from his dad. And he needed someone. He was trying to paint it, and he couldn't do it. So he was like, I need a model. I need somebody who looks like that prodigal son coming back. So he went out around the streets and kicked around and, and looked for people. Finally, he found a guy who was a bum sitting on the side of the road just like dirty and hairs all over and nappy and torn clothes and, you know, scruffy beard, just looked bad sitting there on the side of the road. And so he came to the bum and he explained what he wanted to do and said, so I'll give you $100 if you come to my studio tomorrow and just let me paint you because I, I really need you as a model. And, and the guy was like, well, yeah, sure, you know, sit there and get painted for 100 bucks, you know, why not? So the next day, the painter's in his studio and gets a knock on the door, opens the door, and there's some guy standing there and he's like, yeah, can I help you? And the guy says, 
I'm here to be painted. And he said, what do you mean? And he says, well, yesterday you offered me $100 if I would come here and be painted. And the painter didn't recognize him. Because what the man had done after he got the offer, he's like, well, I'm going to get painted. I better fix myself up. And so somehow he scrounged up a pair of nice clothes and somewhere found a shower, like in a, I don't know, shelter or somewhere, and, you know, did this and, you know, shaved and, and got himself, you know, looking different. And, and, and he came there looking like a, a cleaned up person. And the painter said to him, I will not take you. I cannot take you. Because I need you as you were. And so it is. We come to God and we think, oh, I've got to go to God now. You know, you know, put on different clothes and, you know. Get all ready, all this stuff. As if that's going to make us acceptable to God. As if our, you know, efforts at spiritual hygiene, if you want to call it that, are, are going to make us acceptable to the pure, holy God. No, we just have to come as we are with our sins and our brokenness and put them at the feet of the cross and let Jesus cleanse us and make us who He wants us to be. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank You that You came to seek and save that which was lost. Even though You are God and You owe us nothing, You came and gave us everything. And Lord, we pray that we would be a people who love You, who obey You. Lord, we pray that You would destroy spiritual pride in us, that we might meditate on Your greatness and on our servanthood, and that we might not be arrogant toward one another but that we would be just simply humble servants of each other in this church. And Lord, more than that, I pray that, most importantly, we would be humble toward You, that we would recognize that we are just servants and that we wouldn't think that You owe us something. And Lord, I pray that, most importantly, we would not approach our salvation in terms of what we can do to get right with You, but that we might simply take what You've already provided, which is Christ. That we might be humble enough to receive the free gift of a salvation through Christ. And so, Lord, now as we come to the communion table, as we come to this beautiful picture of what Christ did for us, I pray that you would help us to see Jesus. That as we take communion, that the eyes of our heart would see the glory of what Jesus has done for us. So be with us now, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen. Well, as we come to the communion table, we come to uh, celebrate the death of Christ for us on the cross. These elements uh, are pictures of what Jesus did for us. This bread is a, a picture of the body of Jesus that was broken on the cross. And this cup we're about to drink is a picture of the blood of Jesus which was shed for us on the cross. And this is Jesus' table. He serves us. He's the host. We are His guests. We come for what He has freely provided for us. Um, this communion table, we, we practice a form of communion uh, that's very open. So this communion table is open to those who are not members of our church. Uh, But we do ask that if you're going to take communion, that you do know Christ as your Lord and Savior in the way we've just talked about. That you truly have come to that place in your life where you have trusted Christ as your Savior and Master. That that you are certainly a Christian. That you know that in your heart. Um, Because what we're doing when we're taking these elements is we're saying, I trust Christ as my Savior. And so if that's not where you're at spiritually, we would ask for you to participate simply by observing. 
And we say that not because we want to make anyone here feel like a second-class citizen as you sit here, but simply because that's what the, the, the ceremony means. And if that's not where you're at, or you're still considering Christ, or you're not sure, certain if you've trusted Christ, then you know don't do something that, that is inauthentic and not real, and, and so dishonor Christ and his sacrament. Uh, so with that being said, I invite the elders to join me here at the communion table. As we remember, the night before Jesus uh, went to the cross, he was uh, sharing the Passover meal with his disciples. And during that Passover Seder, he took some of the matzah, the unleavened bread, and he gave it a new meaning. He broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is broken for you. And uh, Eldon, would you come and give thanks for the broken body of Jesus? Let us pray. Our most gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you uh, made a plan that we could be reconciled to you. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you loved us so much that you were willing to come to earth to show us the love of God and to go to the cross for our sins. We pray now, Lord, as we partake of this bread, that we would remember what you have done for for us and the great love that you have shown us. We, We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As the elders bring these elements around, I'd invite you just to take this time to pray, to meditate, to confess sins, to thank God, to worship God, uh, and meditate on what Christ has done for us. I'm going to read Psalm 51, and if you'd like to follow along in your Bibles, you can. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. 
Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Jesus' body was broken on the cross so that we could be made whole. Let's eat together. And we remember that at the end of the supper, Jesus took a cup and gave it a new meaning as well. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. And we ask the elders to join us again and John Norton, would you give thanks for Jesus' blood that was shed for us? Let us pray. Father, we just turn to you and uh, see how great you are, how glorious you are, and how great the gift is that you've given us in sending your Son. We thank you for his shedding his blood on our behalf. We give you our praise, our thanksgiving, and our worship. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you'll find your worship bulletins, we're going to sing a song in a few minutes here. If you just have that out and on your lap, ready to go.
The blood of Jesus was shed for us. Let us drink together. Now would you stand? And, uh, let's be dismissed. Just a reminder, after the service, our prayer team is here. They would love to pray with you. Our elders are here. If you'd like prayer after the service, just come forward and uh, say, I'd like some prayer, and they'd love to pray with you, even if you don't know them. They'll pray for you confidentially. Tonight at 5 o'clock is our Thanksgiving service, uh, which is basically a chance for us to thank God publicly for the things He's done in our lives. Uh, you know, we've all watched football, and we've all eaten way too much, and now... You know, let's actually thank God on Thanksgiving. I mean, what a concept. So we're going to come together tonight, and we're actually going to thank Him publicly. So it's an opportunity to do that. It's just it's kind of like a mic. You can say, I want to thank God for this or that. And it's really it's neat to hear the things God's been doing in the church the past year and things people want to give thanks for. So come back tonight. That's at 5 o'clock here, and we'd love to have you. And now, Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd send your people out with your blessing, with the joy of Christ in their hearts, with your love uh, ringing in their ears, so that as we go out into the world, we might find... Others uh, might share the good news that Jesus is a great Savior, a perfect Savior. So, Lord, use us this week. Help us to be those beasts of burden who will carry you into a lost and hurting world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.